Father in heaven, we thank you for your faithfulness to us, the way that you um, give us good things. We're grateful for the opportunity um, to gather again as your church, as your bride this morning, and to, um, to be together and to worship and even to prepare for worship now by reflecting on uh, why we do what we do as a church here at Colleyville. I pray that you bless us by your spirit and ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, does anybody need a handout that hasn't gotten one? Looks like everybody's got one. Thank you, John. If you want to just put them back there, that's fine. Yeah, that's great. Excellent. Okay, so over the next six weeks, um, we are going to be spending some time just discussing um, what it is that, that is distinctive in some ways, at least, about our church, um, Colleyville Presbyterian Church. Why do we do the things that we do? Um, part of this is an opportunity for me as your pastor to kind of give you a sense of my own vision for our congregation and um, the, the, the trajectory that I hope for our church and want to see us embody as a congregation. Um, so I've sort of isolated um, um, five different topics, and then the sixth week we'll talk about what it means to be a member, um, uh, a fully engaged member of our church. But for the first five weeks, I'm going to talk about today, we're going to talk about union with Christ. Um, tomorrow or Next Sunday, we're going to talk about the means of grace and how they're central to who we are as a life of a church, the means of grace being word, sacrament, and prayer. And I think you're going to see how those things build together. We believe that it is in our union with Christ that we dwell with God, and it is in the means of grace, word, sacrament, and prayer that we commune with Christ uh, by the power of the Spirit and are drawn into that triune life of God. Uh, then the third week, we're going to talk about the liturgy and why we worship the way we do on the Lord's Day and how that is also connected to this great overarching emphasis of our church on communing with the triune God through the person of the Son, by the power of the Spirit, um, in the love of the Father. Um, that this is something that we're actually caught up into every Sunday morning as we worship together on the Lord's Day. Uh, the fourth week, we'll talk about what it means to be um, what I would call um, uh, 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 winsomely reformed. So as you know, we are, we're very um, straightforward, I think, front forward with our reformed commitments here. I quote frequently from the Westminster Confession and talk about those things uh, very openly. And yet we also want to be a church that is not only for reformed people, um, but for people who are Christian and who are interested in becoming Christians. And so that means that we want to be distinctively reformed, but also open um, to, uh, to, what it, to others who are not yet um, at those convictions and not even really to see the primary point of our church as making people reformed. Um, what we want to do is we make disciples of Christ, right? And we have certain theological commitments that are important for that, um, but our primary purpose as a church is not to make Reformed Christians or to convince people that the Westminster Confession is the best statement of faith that exists. Um, that's, that's um, yeah, that's just not primary about who we are. Um, we're also going to talk some about Christian freedom and liberty as a part of that. I think that's an important aspect of what it means to be winsomely Reformed. Um, is, the, is the way in which we work out um, the meaning of the scriptures in our own lives in different ways, and the, the Lord gives us freedom to do that. And then finally, the fifth week, we're going to talk about what it means to be Presbyterian in terms of our, uh, our polity and what it means in terms of our government, how we function as a church. And then the, fifth week, or the sixth week, we'll talk about just what does it mean to be a, a faithful member um, here at our church? What does that look like? Um, so that's kind of a big overview of what we're going to do over the next six weeks. And Today I want to start at the beginning, um, which is, for me, um, union with Christ. Union with Christ. Um, for me, this is the fundamental value of our church. This is, the, this is the core, core value. This is the core value that's below everything else, um, which is um, for us to be a, a place where we abide with Jesus and where our union with Him that has been affected by the power of the Holy Spirit is the most centrally true thing 
about who we are. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk us through this morning um, some quotes and some, just some ideas, and we're going to talk, think about what does this look like, how do we really flesh this out. But I just want to say from the beginning, as your pastor, this is the thing that is always at the forefront of my mind, is union with Christ and what it looks like for us as a congregation to embody that with one another um, and also um, in, as individuals um, in our own personal uh, growth in that union. Um, as I've looked back over the last 11 years, I've been ordained as a minister now. The doctrine of union with Christ was something I was um, introduced to in seminary probably um, about 15 years ago. Um, and it's one that slowly over time I have uh, really become more and more dear to me. And I don't know what your perspective is on union with Christ. I know that sometimes in um, Presbyterian reform circles, we don't talk a lot about union with Christ. We talk about other things. We talk about justification. Uh, we talk about predestination. Uh, we talk about, you know, uh, God's sovereignty, um, all these kinds of things. Um, but for me, the, the core heart of the Christian gospel and what I want our church to embody and be is union with Christ. I think as I look back, even over the last five years that I've been pastor here, there were two um, substantial experiences for me that, that led me into this deepening conviction. One was when we preached, I preached through Colossians. Um, we went through that book together for almost a year. Um, this was several years ago now, maybe three or four years ago now. And I took as a sort of framework for that epistle as I read it as a whole and the reading that I tried to advance for you was to read it through the lens of union with Christ using Colossians 3.3. 3. Uh, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When the Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And that's probably a, a, a verse that you know, hopefully, if you worship with us because we repeat it um, and say it back to one another every Sunday morning. And so I think as I read Colossians, just realized how much for Paul, um, what he was doing in that epistle and really all throughout his apostolic writings was trying to, to help um, those to whom he wrote realize that their life was not their own, but was hidden in Christ, that they were united in Christ, that this was, this was the great mystery um, that had come about through the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that now there was a way into God that was fundamentally different and new because it included access to God through this living man, Jesus, and that that was the most central truth, the most central reality about who um, those to whom he wrote were and what, they were, what was actually true about them. Um, the other really important thing for me as I've worked through Union with Christ was teaching through Calvin's Institutes last year. Uh, many of you went on that journey with me together. We spent about 20 weeks or so um, just very slowly walking through the Institutes and looking at extended quotes from Calvin, and as I, as I did that, I, I'd always known that union with Christ was important for Calvin, but I think just going through it with that level of detail and, and, and consistency each week, it just, it just all over the place again and again. For John Calvin, you know, he's known as you know, the guy who just wouldn't stop talking about predestination, right? That was his, his big thing. Um, but really, if you read the Institutes, Calvin's big thing is union with Christ. That's what he's talking about all the time. He's talking about the person of Jesus and how the salvation is summed up in the reality that we are united to him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, for Calvin, that gives him an opportunity, when you talk about union with Christ, not only to talk about union with Christ, but to talk about the work of the Spirit, um, because the Holy Spirit is essential to our union with Christ, and to talk about the love of the Father, because the love of the Father is, the one, is, what, is what sets the whole thing in motion. Um, and so for Calvin, um, union with Christ, though, was the, the sort of fundamental piece um, that, um, that, that he that he focused on again and again and really wove all throughout 
um, his institutes when you read them. So, so just that's just a little personal background for me, why this, some of the reasons why this doctrine has become so important for me, so fundamental to who else I want us to be as a church. So let me um, start by, by, let's just think about what is the point of church? What is the point of being a church? What is the point of going to church? Um, you know, we don't just do it uh, because uh, we're moral, upstanding people, hopefully. Hopefully there is a deeper reality um, to which we're called and to why we, why we invest our time and our energy in these things. <clears throat> so here's what Augustine says. I think this is a really helpful quote. When God invites you, ask me of what you will. What request will you make? Right, whatever you want from God, if God asks you that, what will you ask for? He says, cudgel your brains out with your greed. Stretch it as far as you possibly can. Widen your desire. Right? Ask for everything, for everything. Nothing more precious will you find, nothing better than him who made all things. Ask for him who made them. In him and from him you will have everything he has made. They are all precious because they are all beautiful. But what is more beautiful than he? They are strong, but what is stronger than he? And what he wants most of all to give you is himself. I love this emphasis that is really throughout Augustine, especially shows up in the Confessions, of course, but also in his commentaries and other writings, which is that the, the, the goal of the Christian life, um, really the goal of human life, is to, be, uh, is to commune with the living God. Communion with God is, is why you exist. It's what you were made for. Um, that's the point that Calvin came back to again and again. And, and the good news, according to, or, I'm sorry, I said Calvin, Augustine. The good news, according to Augustine, is when you ask for God and receive God, you get everything else thrown in, right? Uh, Lewis has a very similar quote. It's almost like he maybe read Augustine or something, right? Um, that if you, if you ask for God, you get everything else thrown in on top, right? Um, but if you go for the the lesser things, and you miss out on the Creator. Um, and I think that's a really fundamental point as we think about the purpose of our life. The purpose of our life is to, um, to live eternally in communion with the living God, uh, the triune God, um, to live forever and to do so in communion with God Himself. This, this is um, enshrined in our Westminster Shorter Catechism, right? This isn't just Augustine. This is also our Protestant Reformed tradition. The chief end of man, we believe, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Right? A lot of times you hear Reformed people speak, sometimes you just think that we stop. Like, the chief end of man is to glorify God, period. Right? That's, but it doesn't stop there. Right? The, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And I love the way that this, the Catechism has that, um, because it, it includes this effective side of who we are, that we are not only to glorify God, but also to be uh, to find pleasure in Him, um, to derive um, joy um, from our communion with Him, um, which is a, a fascinating thing to think about, I think, that we, we get to enter into the life of God, um, not just as sort of these, you know, two-dimensional mirrors that reflect His glory somehow back up to Him, but we actually get to be living people that enter into His life and enjoy Him, enjoy His presence, enjoy His person, enjoy who He is as we can. It's a fascinating thing. All right, before we keep going, any, any questions about anything I've said so far? Any thoughts? Okay. So the ultimate end of the Christian life, and thus the purpose of the church, I would argue, the body of Christ, the community of Christians, is communion with the triune God. That is why we exist. 
I think it's so important for us to start there, that we exist as a church, most fundamentally to be a place where men, women, and children are drawn into communion with, this God, with God in this life and in the life to come. Um, there are a lot of other things you could say that the church is about, right? The church is about building the kingdom. Uh, the church is about um, you know, fighting um, for justice. The church is about evangelism. Um, the church is about um, service, uh, you know, whatever it might be. And, I, and those are all fine and good things, right? But I think that we have to start here, that the purpose of the church is to be the place where people learn to commune with God, to dwell with Him, to be brought into the life of the divine, of the triune God, uh, through the person of Jesus Christ. Um, and then my hope is that as we do that, the fruit will flow from that place. The ways in which you know, our church is called to serve and to fight for justice and to do evangelism and to do mission and do all these other things that are connected with building the kingdom, that those things all come out of our communion uh, with the triune God in the person of the Son. Um, that, that, that we have to get that order straight, in my opinion. Um, that is so fundamental. And maybe that sounds a little mystical or a little... Um, you know, whatever, but I'm okay with that. Actually, I grew up Pentecostal, so, you know, I'm okay with a little, um, little Holy Spirit spirituality. Um, and I, but it really is, for me, that this is, you cannot separate um, the contemplative life, the life where you, you contemplate and commune with God himself from the life of service and mission and obedience and all those other things. Um, they're intimately connected. They have to be. Otherwise, our obedience, our mission, our justice, all those things are just our own efforts and our own desires and not flowing um, from the one who is the source of our life, which is God himself. Okay, so if, if the purpose of our church is to, is to commune with the triune God, um, then how does union with Christ play into this? So here are the two points I have. First point, and this is such an important point for me, all of who God is, we believe, I believe, our church believes, has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1.18, when I preached through John um, in the first year and a half or so that I was pastor here, that was also a transformational experience for me, partly because we used as our lens for that um, gospel, um, John 1.18, that is, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known, right? And this is a, really a thesis statement, I think, for John and his gospel, that that. The God of, who made the world has been fundamentally in some ways um, uh, not fully disclosed to his people. Yes, he spoke to them in clouds, right, on Sinai. He spoke to them through the prophets and through the scriptures and various ways through miracles. But, but in the incarnation of Jesus, something new has happened. No one has ever seen God, right? That is the, the, one of the major emphases of the Old Testament. You know, you think about when Moses... Um, and Exodus um, wants to see God's face, and God says, you can't do that, I'm going to hide you in the rock, you can see my backside, but that's it. Um, and then later when Elijah, or Isaiah in Isaiah 6 has his vision, right, he's undone, he, he falls on his face, no one can see God. Um, that would be crazy. But the crazy thing about the incarnation is that the only God, the one who is at the Father's side, in the Father's bosom, even more literally, he has made him known. He has made the unknowable God known in the person of the Son. And what this means, Thomas Torrance, who is one of my favorite 20th century theologians, he sums this up with this statement. He says, this means there's no God behind the back of Jesus Christ. 
but only this God whose face we see in the face of the Lord Jesus. And I love that. I love that quote because I think it's exactly right. And it's the whole thrust of what Jesus was talking about and how he understood himself, that he was really, truly a full revelation of his Father. There is no God behind the back of Jesus Christ. There's no other part of who God is that is not revealed in the person of the Son. He is the full revelation of the Father and of the Spirit. Together, the Son sums them up and reveals them um, or, um, to, to the world and to those whom He loves. Um, the Son reveals the Father by the power of the Spirit, we might say. Um, so this is part of why union with Christ is so important, because the Father in His infinite wisdom has chosen in the incarnation of His Son um, to make Himself fully known, um, that He has provided for us a way of knowing who He is and who the one God is um, by the incarnation of the Son. Secondly, when we possess and are possessed by Christ, we are then brought fully into the life of God. Right? So to say union with Christ is to say union with the triune God. Um, there is no distinction fundamentally. Um, in fact, union with Christ is now the great way in which we become um, uh, brought into the life of the one true God. Um, and this, the whole New Testament is full of this, right? Um, but just a, just a quote from a, a couple places. First uh, Corinthians 3, 23, I love this verse. Paul is reflecting on different things and he ends by saying, you are Christ's, right? You belong to Christ and Christ is God's, right? He, he's arguing for this sort of, you belong to Christ and because you belong to Christ, Christ belongs to God. So you are brought into the life of God. That's what he's saying, right? And this is, this is what we believe in terms of, um, I mean, we could, we don't have time this morning, we could talk a lot about the way in which the, the oneness of God while also being distinct in three persons is a picture of what the incarnation is, that Jesus is um, two um, um, uh, natures, divine and human, in one person that are inseparable, but also not confused, right? They're distinct, but they're also completely joined. That, that's what... You know, the Trinity is like that in that it's three persons but one being, right? The, the nature of Christ is like that in that he has two natures in one person. And we are like that because we are united to Jesus. We're distinct from Jesus. We're not absorbed into his being, but we are inseparably united. And so do you guys see how that all builds on one another? We're united to Jesus in this mysterious way. Jesus is united in himself between his human and divine natures in this way. And the Father, Son, and the Spirit are united to one another in this way that maintains their, their distinctiveness, but also inseparably joins them together. So it is through this living Christ that we get brought into that divine life of the Trinity. And that is what Paul is saying in Colossians 3 when he says, You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Right? We're hidden with Christ in the triune God. Um, and that, and that, is, that, is, that is what it means to be possessed by Christ. Calvin reflects on this. He says, as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. And how does he dwell within us? By the power of the Spirit, right? as he tells us in John 15 and other places. Right? This is how Jesus dwells with us, is by the power of his Spirit. And I think this is so fundamental because when you really begin to work this out in your life um, spiritually, 
Christianity becomes not just something where you are supposed to believe certain things are true, right? Where you just give assent to certain propositional statements about who God is and about, and I love the creeds, you know that, um, but it becomes more than that, right? Christianity is not just about giving intellectual assent um, to some true things. It is about a living communion with the person who has brought you into the life of the triune God. And that is the fundamental thing. Not getting your ideas straight, but communing with a, with a human being, with a man who dwells with you and in you by the power of the Spirit. I think it's a fundamentally different way of thinking about what it means to be a Christian. <clears throat> what it means to be a church, too, in some ways. Any questions so far? I know I'm covering a lot, moving rapidly. Yeah, John? Mm-hmm. Your life is hidden. That's right. There's nothing that can take it away. That's the amazing thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a statement of fact, right? It's almost like a past tense. You have died. Your life is now hidden. Yes, sir. Jeremy. That's right. And I, and I would argue that, the, and yes, you get a sense of that glory in the Old Testament of the triune God, um, but it's always sort of as from far off, like you just get a picture of, you know, that from a distance, like Sinai was covered by this cloud. You don't get to go up into the cloud, really, in terms of what Moses describes. But what you get with incarnation is, like you're saying, you get that glory, but you get it face to face, right? Peter gives us and Mark and the other apostles give us this face-to-face encounter with the glory of the transfigured Christ. Um, and then we get these pictures of the resurrection, which I think are also uh, pictures of the glory of, of Christ. And then, yeah, Revelation is a... So I think, it, yeah, I think Jesus is taking up that, that theme from the Old Testament and making it known in even a new way. Um, One more, and then I'm going to keep going. Todd. For me, the genius of the union idea is that, going back to a little bit what Jeremy was talking about, it, it wraps all of Scripture together. It, and so the union and communion thing starts in the garden. Right. And it works its way all the way through to the culmination of, like, the greatest union communion picture. Marriage supper of the Lamb, yeah. Right. If, it, if it can fit and it, it makes sense of everything from something as specific as eating and drinking Jesus' body and blood to making sense of the entirety of Scripture, 
Absolutely. And I think that's right. Union with Christ really is, um, uh, yeah, it's the meta narrative. It's the story that's always being told throughout the scriptures. And there's so, yeah, so many ways to talk about that. Yep, absolutely. So here to, let me just show you a little, some of the ways, I think you all already have a sense for these things, but just to show you, some of the, see there's some of the self-conscious ways in which I'm seeking for us as a church to embody this core value of union with Christ. Um, the two most key phrases for our church um, are, first, you are the beloved, right? You are the beloved. Um, that's a key phrase. I say it a lot. Um, I try to pray it for people when I meet with them. Um, um, we have an annual sermon that I do each January that is just entitled, You Are the Beloved. It's a very simple sermon. It's very straightforward. It just talks about the fact that you are the beloved in Christ, um, and you should believe that and be the beloved, um, because I think that's where we start. That's who we are, um, and, and we are the beloved in Christ, right? We, and also, I'm very, I try to be very intentional about this, too. I, throughout the liturgy, even in my preaching, I frequently refer to you in the direct address as beloved, um, I say, beloved, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. And that is the reason for that is that, that I want that word not only to be a once a year sermon, um, but a, a, a frequent repetition for you to hear that word, that this is the thing that is true about you um, from your pastor who is speaking to you on behalf of God, that you are the beloved, that you are rightly addressed with that term with that phrase, with that word, beloved, the Lord bless you and keep you. And, I, and, and you know, I'll, I'll use that address in sermons. I'll use it all throughout the liturgy, right? Beloved, lift up your heads and hear these words of comfort and good news. Um, and I think it is so fundamental because this is what it means to be hidden with Christ and united to him, that we are in Christ, the beloved of God. That when Jesus says, or when the Father says to the Son, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, when we are united to Christ, he is saying that about us. And that's in many ways what we, and, and that's what Jesus hears before he does what? Before he goes out and establishes the kingdom of God, right? He, he hears that. That becomes the place where he starts in his baptism and his ministry. And that's, that's what we're doing each Sunday in many ways, is just being drawn into that life, into that belovedness that is given to us um, from the Father and the Son by the power of the Spirit. Um, another key phrase um, is Christ is your life, or Christ is our life, we might say. Um, and this is every week in the, in the liturgy, right? I say to you, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And you say, when the Christ who is our life appears, we also will appear with him in glory. Alleluia. And that's on purpose. Like, I want you every week to say, when the Christ who is our life appears. Because I want that phrase to be ringing in your mind, that Christ is your life. Christ is your life. Christ is is your life. It's in the liturgy every week. Um, and taken together, these two scriptural phrases, I think, seek to communicate this key reality that it is in and through our union with Christ that we learn to be the beloved. It is only as we dwell in Christ that we learn to be the beloved. We cannot learn it apart from Him, and it is the thing we must learn if we are to follow in His way. It's the first thing that Jesus received from the Father. Or to put it another way, we learn to be the beloved when we do as Jesus says, which is abide in me, right? And in many ways, that is the, uh, you know, that's another great phrase just to think about what my vision is for the core value of our church, that we'd be a place where we are men, women, and children who abide in Jesus, who abide in him, who derive our life from him and bear fruit um, out of him. 
Um, so a couple things I just want to emphasize, and we can talk about this a little bit more um, before we close, but um, our union with Christ is this organic thing. That's what I want you to see and what I want our church to see, that it's not just this sort of definitive, objective statement that um, is static and unchanging. It is actually like a relationship, right? When a husband and wife are married, um, I'm officiating a wedding ceremony this afternoon, which is, you know, awesome. Um, and when I say you are now man and wife by the authority vested in me, et cetera, et cetera, um, they are man and wife, right? That their fundamental relationship to one another is of one flesh. Um, but their one fleshness is something that they will grow in, Lord willing, over decades and decades to come, right? You, you, you know, I look back at my marriage now, of course, 16 years ago, and um, we were one flesh on that day, and yet we knew nothing about one another. Um, and our intimacy was nothing compared to what it is now. And in a similar way, so it is with Christ, right? When you have faith in Christ and the Spirit unites you to Him, you are one flesh with your Lord and Savior. And yet, as the years go by and you avail yourself of the means of grace, as you are pressed into His life on the Lord's day, as you gather with His people, um, you become more and more one with Him. You grow, actually, into your union with Christ. This is how Calvin describes it. He says, Surely this is so. We ought not to separate Christ from ourselves or ourselves from Him. Rather, we ought to hold fast bravely with both hands to that fellowship by which He has bound Himself to us. I love that from Calvin, right? We don't hold fast bravely to, to, to necessarily to right doctrine or to right ideas or whatever. We hold fast bravely with both hands to the fellowship by which Christ has bound Himself to us. We hold fast to Him most fundamentally. Christ is not outside us, but dwells within us. Not only does He cleave to us by an invisible bond of fellowship, but with a wonderful communion. Day by day, He grows more and more into one body with us until He becomes completely one with us. I think that's fascinating to think about, that our union with Christ actually has a telos, right? It has a goal. It has a trajectory, and it's further up and further in, right? To use the words of Lewis, right? Um, and there's always more. There's always more growth in our union with Christ that is available to us uh, because He is not, um, He is limitless, right? He contains all the treasures of the wisdom of God, um, as, as Paul tells us in Colossians. They're all found in Him. We can never exhaust this fountain of, of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, th I think that is a fascinating to think about as we think about our union with Christ. Um, I also want to quote from this. I love this. This is a, that Calvin quote I just read is, I mean, it's one of the most important theological quotes in my life. I love it. It's so dear to me, um, so formational for who I want to be as a Christian and as a pastor and who I want our church to be. Um, I would say in some ways the, this next quote is not as theological. It's more um, personal, but it also is deeply important to me. This is by a man named Phillips Brooks, who um, you probably know him as the writer of A Little Town of Bethlehem. Um, that famous Christmas hymn. He was an Episcopal preacher in the 19th century. Um, and he wrote many things, but this is a quote from one of his letters um, that I found one time and just really resonated with. Um, this was, as an older man, he wrote this um, to a friend. He said, The more I have thought it over, the less in some sense I have seemed to have say. And yet the more sure it has seemed to me that these last years have had a peace 
and fullness which there did not used to be. I do not think it is the mere quietness of advancing age. I am sure that it is a deeper knowledge and truer love of Christ. And it seems impossible that this should have come in any way except by the experience of life. I find myself pitying the friends of my youth. These are probably men who died in the Civil War. Who died when we were 25 years old. Because whatever may be the richness of the life to which they have gone, they never can know that particular manifestation of Christ which he makes to us here on earth at each successive period of our human life. All experience comes to be not, I'm sorry, all experience comes to be but more and more of pressure of his life on ours. It does not come by one flash of light or one great convulsive event. It comes without haste and without rest in this perpetual living of our life with him. And all our history, all our changes of circumstances, all our changes of thought gets its meaning and value from this constantly growing relation to Christ. I cannot tell you how personal this grows to me. He is here. He knows me and I know him. It is no figure of speech. It is the realest thing in the world. And every day makes it more more real. And one wonders with delight what it will grow to as the years go on. I think that's one of the most beautiful descriptions of the Christian life that I've ever read. Um, I love it. It's hard for me to read it without tears in my eyes. Um, I find it deeply moving the way that it is true and my, speaks to my own experience as a Christian and I think is so radically focused on the person of Christ that this is what it means to grow spiritually, is to know Him. And the only way we know Him is through the the, the successive experiences of our life as he builds himself into us through suffering, through the means of grace, um, through his sovereign hand and care, through his spirit that dwells with us. And it is, it's, it's like a marriage. That's why it's compared so frequently to marriage. It's something we grow into and becomes deeper and deeper and richer and richer as time goes by. Um, so much of what we'll be talking about um, in the weeks to come is taking this core value, this real fundamental core value, and thinking about how it works itself out in the life of our church. This is why we focus on the means of grace the way that we do, because word, sacrament, and prayer are the ordinances we believe that we are given to commune with Christ, that Jesus Christ himself is actually offered in these ordinances, in these means of grace, that in the word we don't just receive knowledge about Jesus, we receive Jesus. In the sacrament, we don't merely um, you know, reflect on his death and resurrection. We actually commune with him. We get Jesus in the Lord's Supper and in baptism. Um, and in prayer, right? We're not just exchanging ideas and thoughts and words with God. We're actually dwelling by the Spirit with Christ in his intercession before the Father. I mean, it, it, that these means of grace are actually ways in which Jesus himself is offered to us. And that's why they're so important. And that's why Sunday is so important. We'll talk about Sunday mornings, the Lord's Day, uh, two weeks from now. 
that on the Lord's Day is when we particularly receive these means of grace in a special way that is absolutely unique. Um, just a practical application of how this union with Christ thing works itself out in our congregation. Um, this is why I preach from the Gospels as frequently as I do. Um, we preached through John. It took us like a year, a year and a half or something. Um, it was like 50 sermons. Um, we're preaching through Mark. You know, we're maybe, you know, we're over halfway, but we've done about 32 sermons or 33 sermons or something. We've still got a ways to go. We've done some other things in between, right? We did the first three chapters of Genesis. We did the book of Colossians. We're doing the Psalms in the summer. Um, we did Ruth. You know, we're doing other things too, but as a church, I want us to be focused primarily in our, in our Sunday morning preaching in the Gospels because it's in the Gospels where we most directly encounter the person of Jesus Christ. Um, and I think that Christian preaching always has to come back to the Gospels. It has to be the fundamental thing that preaching does, is, is point to the, the ultimate revelation of the person of God in His Son, in the Incarnation. That's part of why we do that. Well, but then when we preach, wherever we're preaching, we always seek to preach Christologically, right? When I'm preaching the Psalms, really, you know, it's, it's a trick, kind of. You know, right? I'm preaching about Jesus also <laughs> in the Psalms, right? It's just another way to preach about Christ. Um, and the same with all the other aspects of the Bible, right? The Old Testament, all of it is pointing forward to the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of the Christ. The Gospels are all about those events in a direct form. The epistles that follow are all about reflecting back on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means for them in their life today, right? It's all, all of the preaching that we do, all the scriptural teaching we do, we want it to be focused on the person of Jesus because we think truly that it is our union with Christ which is the most important reality for us. It's also part of why we do the church year. I know the church year may be new for some of you, but this is why we do it. It's not some, you know, law that we have to follow. Um, um, you know, certainly it's not a binding thing, but we think that it is a wise application of the scriptures that it gives us a chance annually every year to travel through, so to speak, the life of Jesus together. Right? Starting with Advent, as we um, look forward and think about the second coming and the way in which God is faithful to us and will be faithful to us. Uh, Christmas, we, we, we gather together, we celebrate the incarnation of the Son. Epiphany, we talk about the mission of the church and we join with Jesus as we were often preaching through a gospel at that time. We prepare for Easter, we reflect on the death of Christ. Right, We do that especially on, on Monday, Thursday when we gather here. Um, the Remember the Last Supper and His communion with us on Good Friday, right? We, we all mark that day solemnly as a church um, as a way to remember annually the death of Christ in a particular way. Easter Sunday, we rejoice and remember the resurrection and enter into that aspect of the living Christ again. Ascension Sunday, right? We reflect and remember in our preaching and our, our singing that day on the, the reality that Christ has ascended to the right hand of God. Pentecost Sunday, the sending of the Spirit. The church here is just merely a pedagogical device to go through the life of Jesus again and again and again. And basically to say there's nothing more. This is, we do it every year because that's what we do. That's who we are. We're those who are dwelling with Christ and in him we find all the treasures of God. All right, let's stand and pray. Father, thank you for the way in which you dwell with us um, in the person of your son. I do pray, Lord, that our church, um, Colleyville Presbyterian, would be a place where we are most defined as a congregation by this reality, our union with Christ, our dwelling with him, 
and the way that that brings us into the life of the triune God, into your own life. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.